It's essential that every church has a good testimony. Many times believers get mixed up and, and we think that the church needs to approach the world, be like the world in order to be more effective. But as the great English preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, reminds us, it is not when the church is most like the world, but when she is most different from the world, that she is most effective. Light shines brighter in the darkness because it it is the opposite of darkness, not because it is like the darkness. And this morning, I want to talk to you about a church that had a great testimony, a testimony that spread throughout the ancient world. And I want to talk to you about one of the things that that church was known about and why that is important for us this morning. I want to talk to you about the church in Thessalonica in the first century. This was a church that was planted by Paul, and he planted it in a a relatively short amount of time, possibly as little as three weeks, maybe as much as three months before he was run out of town for preaching the gospel. But it was a church that immediately suffered for its faith. If you go back and read in Acts chapter 17, you will find that persecution immediately followed the gospel in Thessalonica, and yet it still had a great reputation. And we read about that reputation in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. And I would just ask you to stand with me and we'll read this passage and pray and ask for God's favor upon us as we study his word together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul wrote to this precious church and God preserved it for us Today, and we read, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned from God uh, to God from idols. To, le- to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, we thank you for your kindness, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it better, to live in light of these truths, Help us to anticipate eagerly the coming of Christ. Help us to live in great expectation, knowing the wonderful promises and provision and inheritance that you have reserved for us because of him, because of what he has done in our place. Lord, we are unworthy slaves who deserve nothing but you have promised us an inheritance that is unimaginable. Help us to live in light of that inheritance. Help us to live knowing that Jesus Christ is coming for us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. 
we're going to see that this church in Thessalonica in the first century is known for four clear characteristics. And then, as I said, I want to focus on one of those characteristics and just talk about why that's important for us today. So what was the reputation of the church in Thessalonica in the first century? Notice what Paul says. I'm going to read verse 8 again. Paul says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Paul says it's not just your testimony, your good reputation that is known. But he says the word of the Lord, the gospel, truth has literally echoed from this town all throughout the region because of God's work in these believers. Paul says everywhere we go, your reputation precedes us. People know about you. They enthusiastically recommend us to us, you, and glorify God because of what he has done in you. But it's not just that. The truth echoes out from this town. The news of the church and its beginning was so powerful that it aids us in the proclamation of the gospel and of the word of God. Paul's message as he traveled around was enhanced because of the testimony and the reputation of this young church. Wherever we go in Greece, whether we're in Achaia, whether we're in Macedonia, people know about this church. But what did they know about them? Well, look at verse 9. What does Paul say? For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. The word here for reception is the word entrance. It speaks of the grand entrance that the gospel, the team of gospel preachers had in this town. When they came into town, the lost were found. Sinners became saints by faith in Christ. The elect believed and they became children of God and the work of God was established. Now, this wasn't some mega church. It was just a small outpost in a small, in a dark, dark place. But what was critical is they welcomed the gospel and they welcomed the truth. Later in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says of these new converts that they did not accept their message as the word of men, but for what it truly is, the word of God, which is powerful and effective and does its work in those who believe. Of course, this is the work of God, right? God prepared their hearts. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, The gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then in verse 6, Paul testifies that they received this gospel with much tribulation. This was the circumstances. There was immediate persecution. But Paul also speaks of the attitude with which they received the word, with joy in the Holy Spirit. So these simple, persecuted new believers loved the word of God. 
and they welcomed with open arms the men who brought that message to them. This church was also known for its radical transformation. Look again at verse 9. Paul says, They themselves report about us, what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turned to God from idols. Their lives were completely turned around. They experienced a radical reordering of their lives. They were going in one direction. They were serving their idols. They knew nothing else. But God worked in their lives, turned them, and brought him to himself. There was a change of loyalty. There was true repentance, a change of mind that led to a change in the thrust in their behavior. They changed direction. They changed their thinking. They changed their practice. Their new relationship to God had a clear impact on their lives. This is what the gospel does. This is the exact same thing that Paul talks about in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation and teaching you to deny ungodly behavior, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The gospel brings transformation. Thirdly, this young church had a reputation for reverent toil, for reverent toil. Paul says that they are known to serve the living and true God. The word that Paul uses here for serve is the same root as the word for slave. Of course, modern society thinks that this is an ugly word. But when we understand that our master is good, that he's righteous, that he is generous, then this is a precious word. It's a wonderful word that describes our relationship to our Father and our God. Paul says you, le- you serve the living and true God, and, and he acknowledges with this that, that ministry is hard work. It's a service. It requires sacrifice, energy, effort, time through the week. But it is good because our master is good. Our God is living and true. He cares for us. He rewards us. He blesses us. Now, in my experience, this is not so unique to the church in Thessalonica. Churches that are well taught in the word are often very busy churches. This is not too hard to find. Frankly, there's a lot of busy people in a lot of busy churches. But it's the fourth characteristic that I want to draw our attention to this morning. In addition to being known for their reception of the truth, their radical transformation, and their reverent toil, the Thessalonian believers were also known for their reoriented trajectory. That is to say, They knew where they were headed. They knew what was waiting for them, or rather, they knew who was coming for them. 
because they were new creatures in Christ, because they had been redeemed, the believers in Thessalonica lived with great anticipation. They lived with great expectation. Look at verse 10 again with me. Verse 10 says, And they wait for his son, or you wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. These precious believers in Thessalonica were waiting for Jesus to come for them from heaven. Literally, they served God and they waited for Jesus from heaven. They knew that when he came, that would be the end of their shift. Do you have a job that makes you watch the clock? You work, you work hard, you do what's expected of you, but the whole time you're thinking, when do I get out of here? When do I get to go home to be with my family, my wife, my children, my husband? When do I get back to my sanctuary? (laughs) You're working, but your eye is on the clock. When can I get out of here? Well, everyone who knew of the church in Thessalonica knew this about them. Their hands were busy. They were engaged. They were working. And their service, their toil, their, their labor was reverent. It was for God. It was Godward. But they also worked with one eye toward heaven. Their real master, the one for whom they labored, was coming for them from heaven. And as Revelation tells us three times in the final chapter of the canon, he is coming quickly. He is coming quickly. In chapter 22, Revelation verse 12, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. I want to talk about this attitude. I know a lot of busy Christians. I know a lot of Christians that are engaged in ministry, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I know a lot of transformed Christians. In fact, there's nothing but a transformed Christian, right? I know a lot of Christians who love the truth. But I don't know that all these precious believers are working with one eye toward heaven, waiting for him to come, God's son who rescues us from the wrath to come. I'm convinced that the believers in Thessalonica, one of the earliest Christian churches, one of the earliest epistles written in the New Testament, that they were convinced and understood the doctrine of imminency. The doctrine that says Jesus could come at any moment and we should be ready. And this is connected to the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture. The pre-tribulational rapture, according to the Faith Community Church doctrinal statement, is an event that occurs before the seven-year tribulation and immediately after the resurrection from the dead of those true believers who died after the ascension of Christ. goes on to say there will be a personal bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ 
to translate, which is to say to transport us, to transform us and transport us, his church from the earth. Beloved, this is the next event on God's timeline. This is the prophetic timeline that the scriptures lay out for us. The next thing to happen, according to the scriptures, is that Jesus will come prior to a seven-year period that is known as the tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. The details of this prophecy were first given in, in, in greater detail to Daniel. And he was told that this is concerning his people and his city, the Israelites and Jerusalem. And we find more details about this time in other passages in Old Testament prophecy and also in the Gospels, also in the Thessalonian epistles, and of course, in the book of Revelation. The purpose of that period is to prepare Israel for repentance and mass conversion when she will finally be restored and welcome her Messiah. A second purpose for this period of time is for God to pour out his wrath on a world that rejected his Messiah and loves its sin. I am convinced that Jesus will come and remove his bride, the church, before this period. I believe also that 1 Thessalonians teaches this, and I believe that this is the tenor of all prophecy regarding what will happen in the last days. The church is told to wait for Jesus who will come from the heavens. The church is told to look to heaven. This is what Paul taught the Thessalonians. This is why they were waiting. If Jesus is coming after the time of the tribulation begins, then we should look for signs. We should be concerned with who's the Antichrist? Is he on the earth right now? Who's God? What's God? What's Magog? We'd be reduced to, to reading the headlines every morning and trying to connect it to the scriptures to see, are the times playing out now? But we are taught to wait for the appearance of the Savior in the heavens. This is our blessed hope. Beloved, he is coming to rescue us from the wrath that is to come, from what John calls the hour that is going to come upon the whole earth, the hour of testing in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. He's coming to rescue us from a great tribulation that Jesus says has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now and never will. These are Jesus' words in three of the Gospels. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is to convince you of the importance of this truth and to persuade you to live like our brothers and sisters in Thessalonica in the first century. Work hard. Serve God. But keep your eye on heaven because our good master is coming. And that will be the end of our shift on this sinful world. When you read the Bible, you will see that the biblical writers repeatedly affirm 
that the time is near. Jesus will return in the same way he left. He is coming. The Bible tells us that believers should be expectant. They should be eager. The Bible does not give us signs or conditions or prerequisites that must occur before Jesus' appearing. The broad testimony of the biblical writers is that we should expect him next. Furthermore, they connect this expectation to our Christian life, how we should live. The imminent return of Jesus is a critical and practical doctrine. And I want to give you four reasons why that is the case. First of all, we should eagerly wait for Jesus to come because it is critical for our solace. Now, mind you, I didn't say solas. I'm not preaching on the Reformation this morning, although that would be a great theme. But I'm talking about our solace, our comfort. This is a doctrine that brings us great comfort. In fact, if you turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is what Paul emphasized. I don't have time to unwrap this whole passage, but look over in chapter 4, We'll briefly look at 13 to 18. This is the most detailed explanation of the rapture. And if you'll notice, Paul says in verse 13 that he did not want these early Christians to be uninformed. The word here, uninformed, is uh, related to the word agnostic. The word agnostic means ignorant, someone who does not know anything. And so young people, when your friends say, well, I'm agnostic, Don't think that's cool. That's a confession of ignorance. Paul didn't want the Thessalonian believers to remain in their state of not knowing, lacking knowledge. And so he begins to teach them, and he immediately gives them a reason why he wants to, again, emphasize this truth that he's already taught them in person Why he wants them to understand this, he says, so that you do not grieve as the rest who have no hope. This has a direct impact on how we look at life and death. And again, I don't have time to to go into the details of this passage, but what Paul does here is he gives a basic, clear order of this next event. Verse 16 says, Jesus will descend from heaven to the clouds. This is the same language as chapter 1. We're waiting for him to come. Paul says, the dead in Christ, our brothers and sisters who have put their faith in Christ but have since died, they will be resurrected first. They will rise first. And then Paul says, we who remain. And, And note Paul includes himself in this group. Why? Because he thought this could happen in his own lifetime. He hoped, he expected this could happen in my own lifetime. We who remain will be caught up together with him, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. In short, Jesus is coming for us. For all who have put their faith in him since he died. And we will go and we will meet him. And we will always, verse 17 says, 
be with him. This is very similar to what Jesus says in John chapter 14. This is the next event. There's no intervening events. Uh, Jesus said in John that I will come for you and I will take you to the Father's house and we will always be together. Very similar language. There's no judgment. There's no great tribulation here. There's no wrath that's mentioned on the world. Instead, Jesus comes and we're out of here before all that begins. And Paul says in verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another. Do you feel more and more out of place in this world? Do you feel like this world is ripe for judgment? I don't know whether it's because um, we moved back here after 25 years of living overseas in, in July. I know a lot of it has to do with the, the intense political climate. Where there's just so much division and people are unable to even talk to each other, it seems like, anymore. But I just feel more and more like this world is not my home. And that's a good thing. That's the way it should be. I'm not an expert on eschatology, but I love to study it. I love to study it because it is a comfort to me. It gives me hope. Paul continues in chapter 5, and he talks about the day of the Lord, that period of time, the tribulation, when God will judge this earth. And he explains that when people are secure and confident that that day of the Lord, the beginning of it, will come like a thief in the night, sudden, unexpected, unannounced. There's no warning. And for those who remain, it will be a time of destruction, intense throws like labor pain that gets more and more intense until the end. But Paul says, we are not in darkness, that this day should overtake us. This is not our lot. We are sons of light, sons of day, chapter 5 says. We are not in darkness, verse 4. Our inheritance is different. It is salvation. It is deliverance. Verse 8 says that we should be serious-minded, full of faith and love and hope. And note again in verse 11 what Paul says. Comfort. Encourage one another. Build one another up with these truths. So the imminent return of Jesus Christ is critical for our solace. But we should also eagerly wait for Jesus to come from heaven at any moment for our survival. We live in a wicked world that's full of suffering. And sometimes the best that we can hope for is to survive another day. Survive until Jesus comes to deliver us. Paul writes in his first epistle, um, he writes his first epistle to, to believers whom he reminds to rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, they are being distressed by various trials. 
And then later, as an example of suffering righteously, he points his readers to Jesus Christ, who is an example to us of a man of faith. He also reminded them of the fiery ordeal which comes upon them for their testing. And that should not be a surprise as if some foreign or unique or unexpected thing was happening. That's in chapter 4. Reading this epistle is good preparation for what could be a time of great suffering that will yet come upon the church and, in fact, has already come upon the church in many places in this world. But if you take time to read 1 Peter, you will note how often Peter refers to the second coming and 2 Peter, as we read earlier. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the appearance of the chief shepherd. And people may say, well, that doesn't prove a pre-tribulational rapture, that Christ will take the church away before the tribulation. In fact, this proves that the church must suffer. And to that, I would simply say this. Suffering various necessary trials for a period of time should indeed be our expectation. That is our lot. However, the intensity, the quantity, the quality of the trials and the tribulation that is described in the Old Testament prophecy, that's described again in the Gospels by Jesus, and is described in Revelation, these are significantly different and unique in comparison to the suffering for righteousness' sake that is our lot in this world. But regardless of where you land on the timing of our deliverance from this wrath that is coming, it all starts with Jesus coming for the church from heaven. And this is a salvation. This is a deliverance. This is the end, the the completion of our salvation. And that expectation is a powerful aid in surviving whatever difficulties we face. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Our salvation will be revealed, it will be demonstrated, it will be proven at the last time when Jesus comes. Peter continues in verse 6 and he says, And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So our faith, our persevering faith, our God-enabled faith will be proven at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that will result in praise. It will bring forth praise and glory and honor to him, not to us. So our expectation, our anticipation of the salvation that we will receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ, it strengthens us. It helps us to survive the present suffering in this world. Thirdly, we should live with an eye toward heaven, waiting and eagerly anticipating Jesus' coming because this is a great motivation for service. You can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. This is Paul's longest explanation of the future resurrection of the believer and what that looks like, how it will happen, when it will happen, why it's important, and how it is related to Christ's resurrection. And at the end of the discussion, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When you know that your work will be rewarded, when you know that the outcome of your efforts is a benefit, a happy result, isn't it much easier to do hard work? Doesn't it make hard work much more bearable? Whether you're talking about a major project at work, maybe a major renovation in your home, maybe it's a summer ministry trip, and you know you're going to go, you're going to work hard, you're going to be busy 24 hours a day, uh, you're going to come home exhausted, but you're going to have that deep satisfaction knowing that you served God and you served God's people. The scriptures often uh, describe this or compare this to having a baby, the labor that comes, the intensity that grows, the toil, the, the effort. But you know that there is reward, blessing, and joy that follows. And that makes all the toil, all the labor, all the sacrifice easier, right? This is the same connection that Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You serve, you work, you're serving the living and true God, but you do so with an eye toward heaven. Peter makes the same connection in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit, devoted to prayer. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Be hospitable and serve one another with the gifts that God has given you because the time is near. I think if we would grasp this truth, it would change the way we think. It would reshuffle our priorities. Jesus is coming soon. I think I can go a little bit longer. I can work a little harder. I can survive until tomorrow. Jesus is coming soon. I don't need a lot of stuff. Jesus is coming soon. Darby, I hate to say this, but we may never get into that building. 
Jesus is coming soon. Who cares if Saban retired? Jesus is coming soon. You want to borrow my car? You can have my car. I've got a white Mustang. I'm going to be coming back with Jesus. Living in eager anticipation motivates us for service. Finally, we need to live in eager anticipation that Jesus could come from the heavens at any moment for our solace, for our survival, for our service, and finally for our sanctification. Sanctification is hard work, isn't it? Holiness is hard work. It doesn't come easy. Conformity to Christ is no walk in the park, at least for sinners like me, and I trust you're in the same boat. We need all the help we can get. And the scriptures recognize this and gives us many strategies on the path to Christ-likeness. And one of the strategies is anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. We've seen that both Peter and Paul recognize this, but the definitive passage about sanctification and its relationship to the appearing of Jesus Christ is in 1 John chapter 2. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2 with me. We'll start reading in verse 28. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. John writes this. Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away at his coming. We are waiting for Christ to appear in the heavens. And beloved, in that moment, in that moment, we want to have confidence, not, not shame. We're not people pleasers struggling with prideful shame, but we are called to be Christ pleasers who are discovering what it is that honors him, what he wants us to do, and to be busy about those things. Jonathan Edwards, the great scholar, theologian, preacher, and missionary was very concerned about his own spiritual growth. In order to keep himself on track in response to the scriptures, he wrote 70 different resolutions to compel himself, to propel himself down the path of Christ-likeness. Resolution 19 states this, resolved never to do anything which I would not, or which I would be afraid to do if I expected there would not be more than an hour before I hear the last trump sound. Beloved, when Jesus comes, we want to be leaping up, not shrinking away, hiding our face. Keep reading. Uh, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And then chapter 3, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And listen to, chapter, to verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, 
We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If we could grasp this truth, it would solve a lot of problems. If we just lived our lives expectantly, that at any moment Jesus could come, appear in the heavens, and fetch us to himself. It would simplify a lot of choices that our flesh, our pride, our selfishness, our lust tend to complicate. Are you looking for Jesus? Do you want to see him in the heavens? Is he more precious to you than anything in this world? When you think about the fact that Jesus is coming, does your heart start beating a little faster? Is that because of excitement? Or is that because of fear? I hope that you're persuaded that not only could Jesus come at any moment, but that this doctrine is immensely practical. I pray that Faith Community Church will always live on its toes, ready. May Faith Community Church always be known for its reception of the truth, for its radical transformation, for its reverent toil, and its reoriented trajectory. And may we find solace, strength for survival, motivation for service, and incentive for sanctification in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is coming for us. He is at the door. He can come at any moment, and that should change the way we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for every precious promise. And among those promises are that we will make it. We will survive. We will persevere. And we will see Jesus. And we can't wait. Purify our hearts. Wean us from this world. And help us to live in eager anticipation of Jesus' coming. Strengthen our hands that we can be busy taking the gospel to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, and across the world. That we may be found diligent, serving, and ready when Jesus comes. Give us the strength to do this for your glory and for your honor. When he appears, our blessed Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.